you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll have it on the screen, but you just encourage you to look in your Bible, circle things, underline things as God uh, works and, and, and really speaks to your heart, speaks to your life with what, with what we work through. We do have uh, Bibles also available outside, and so I encourage you to grab a Bible out there as well if you need one. 1 Corinthians 12, we'll look at verses 1 through 11, and if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, and or to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues." All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is God's word. May add his blessing to the reading of it. You may be seated. And would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to this text, we ask, Lord, that you would show us truth from your word. Father, show us truth that helps us in our life of worship and devotion to you but also our life of service to you. And thank you, God, for the gifts that you've given the body of Christ and help us to understand them better. We pray all of these in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are always measuring ourselves. It really starts uh, even as a little baby, I think as a little toddler. Um, You can see the little ones measuring themselves to see whether they're going to have what it takes to go get that toy that's across the room by walking or whether they're going to have to crawl over there and and, and to get it. Measuring ability with what is needed at the time. A young girl may measure herself wondering um, if she's going to have the grades to get into that school that she wants to get into or whether she's going to make the soccer team uh, that she wants to try out for. A young man may measure himself and really be evaluating the situation of whether when he asks this young lady to marry him, whether he thinks that she'll say yes and how he'll be able to provide for her. You know, we are measuring ourselves when it comes to jobs, relationships, money, and time. Um, There's a measurement that's going on. Now, the problem that we often have is that we can use an improper measure or a, a wrong measuring stick. And that's what's going on in the city of Corinth. They are measuring spirituality, and they're using the wrong measuring stick to discern who is the spiritual person. Um, And they do it in the area of spiritual gifts. What our hope today that we're going to do is in looking at spiritual gifts, and you would have seen that as we read through it, is to understand the freedom that God gives us in our gifts, to understand the freedom of seeing ourselves in grace and to see how he has equipped us and prepared us 
to serve him for his glory and the good of the people that are around us. Now, 1 Corinthians was written as a letter. I say this most weeks, but we want to remember it's a letter. It's not a book. It's a letter that addresses real, on-the-ground situations going on inside of the church. In this case, the church was in the city of Corinth, um, where modern-day Greece is today, and the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to address different situations, different conflicts that were within the body at that time. And one of the issues that we see is in verse, we see in verse 1, there's a problem over the issue of spiritual gifts. He says that some people inside the church were uninformed about spiritual gifts. And so he's writing this section of the letter to address that, um, to really set the record straight, right? To set it the way that it should go. Now, he actually spends what we say is what we look at is three chapters doing this. Chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14. So, you know, we're going to be spending a number of weeks on this as we look forward. But today really gives us kind of that basis, gives us that foundation, that starting point, which is so critical for understanding um, how God has gifted and called the church to serve him in, in this world. Now, the first accusation that he wants to deal with as he writes this letter to them is, um, is, is the accusation that some Christians weren't as spiritual as other Christians because they didn't have certain manifestations of the Spirit. They weren't demonstrating certain behaviors. Namely, the, the one they're especially dealing with in these three chapters is the issue of speaking in tongues. Um, <clears throat> evidently, what's going on inside the church here is that some of the Christians were saying, well, my great gift is the really important gift. My gift is the real spiritual gift. And as they're comparing uh, spiritual gifts with one another, it's giving this attitude of superiority of one over another. Some gifts are being supervalued, overvalued even. And where other ones that are really important are being undervalued and not seeing for uh, the level of importance they have. There's always a, a danger of building a sort of a two-tiered Christianity where you have one person, you know, where you have one group of people, well, you're just kind of the saved group um, because you've done this one thing. Maybe you say you believed in Jesus. But the really spiritual people, they're the ones who show these extra manifestations, these extra demonstrations, which show they're really the truly spiritual and maybe even the truly saved ones. You know, we're not talking about Christian maturity here. Of course, we know Christian maturity happens where a person um, reads God's word, sits under God's word, and over time, uh, they change. Over time, that they put on Jesus Christ in obedience to his commands, in response to his direction and his will, they become more and more like Jesus. You know, they grow in character. They make uh, wiser decisions. They act more in love with other, They act more loving towards other people. There's a maturity that goes on said the Christian life, but it's, it's not a two-tiered system where just because you have some experience or manifestation, well, then you've entered into this upper stage. He's addressing those sort of things today. And what we're going to see today in our passage is that if you are a Christian, true believer in Jesus Christ, it is because God the Holy Spirit has worked decisively in your life. There's been a powerful work already that has happened, and God has left evidence and marks and gifts in order for you to be used for his glory and his kingdom. When Jesus was in this world, he said before he left, he said, before I leave, uh, or after I leave, my Father will send you the Holy Spirit. 
In other words, Jesus was here. He had a limited ministry for about 30 years, 33 years, and then he was going to be gone. But he was in a body, and so he could only be in one place at one time. And he says, it's a good thing that I'd go away because God will send the Holy Spirit. My Father will send the Holy Spirit because he's a spirit. He doesn't have a body. He can be everywhere at once. This is omnipresence inside the world. And so that is what that the Holy Spirit is, this third person of the Trinity. It is the presence of God among God's people. Useful for, therefore, uh, conversion, uh, convicting us of sin, acting as a conscience inside of our lives, and equipping us for ministry. What we, what we want to do today is to look at what is his work. What is the thing that he does inside of the church, inside the body of Christ, and how is that connected up with spiritual gifts? So we'll see three things. The first of the things we want to look at is that the Holy Spirit saves. What does the Holy Spirit do? The first thing, and even the main thing that he does, is to save. We'll see that in our passage here. As, as the Apostle Paul writing this identifies the primary mark of a Christian. And that is confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. And his point in verses 1 through 3 is you simply cannot do that unless the Holy Spirit is a part of your life. If you look at verse 2, we see a picture of the fallen human heart. The human heart, as it is in sin, born in sin, is drawn to worship anything but the true God. He says this in verse 2, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. He's describing their their pre-Christian life. He points to their pagan worship practices that they held before they believed in Jesus. It's a reminder to us that because we are created in God's image, to reflect back to him his glory is that we are inherently worshiping creatures. We will worship. We will worship something. The difference is, what is it that we will worship? Are we going to worship the true God, or are we going to worship what he calls here mute idols? Romans chapter 1 clearly says that the human heart in sin will not worship God or worship anything but God. We can look at Romans 1.18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We're reminded here that it's not that we're ignorant of the truth of God's existence, but there is a suppression of the truth. The reality of a God who judges sin and who declares us sinful is too much for us to consider. And so instead of receiving, embracing it, and looking for salvation in it, it is suppressed and it is held back. It is held down. And as a result, it's not that we become less spiritual. It's just that our spirituality is diverted to other things, even idols. That's what they picked. They picked mute idols. Idols that cannot hear, idols that cannot speak, idols really that cannot act. We see this alluded to in Romans 1.22, where it says, claiming to be wise, being wise in their rejection of God, says they became fools. And they exchanged, see what's going on here, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So here you have the living, eternal, true God, and we're trading him in and getting something which is much more comfortable and palatable to what our desires are and doesn't ask so much of us. Now, they were trading it for physical idols. We don't see many physical idols around us, but we're reminded of the idols of the human heart, as of the human heart, which could be uh, money, 
It could be in control. It can be in sex. It can be in acceptance. It could be in pleasure or in celebrity. The unbelieving human heart stuck in sin does not want to trust God. It thinks that by having some other idol, some other thing, and really locking into that thing, that that thing will give me safety and security and won't ask that much for me. Won't ask as much as God could ask of me inside my life. But the secret of it, this, is that idols never deliver. And idols always demand. They never deliver what's promised, and they always demand more than we thought they ever would. Maybe you've experienced that inside of your life. That we see that in verse 2, with this phrase that he ends verse 2 with, which it says, however you were led. And we can think of, and maybe you've known it yourself, the debauchery or the immorality or the lifestyle or the darkness of following an idol. However it leads, however it leads calling us to do this. Sacrifice for me. Do this in your life, and, and you'll be happy. And what do we do? We do it. And then we find that we're in more despair than we were to begin with. There's no hope in it. It's a dead-end street. It can't speak. It can't help. It has no power. But yet, we're still drawn to it. We still love that because of the few demands that are put on us. And, and, and the idea of a God who judges sin and who has provided a way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, for some reason, is too much to the unbelieving heart. And so given the, the power of that unbelief, it is nothing short of a miracle that anyone would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing short of a miracle. And that's the point that he's making inside of verse 3. It's a miracle of God for anybody to be able to say, Jesus is Lord, and then to actually live that way. It's a demonstration of the Holy Spirit and his presence inside of, of a person's life. The ability to say that Jesus is Lord is a sign that the person has truly been born of the Holy Spirit of God. We see this referred to in, in John chapter 3, verse 5, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So I say that we're not going to let him in. It says he cannot. He does not have the ability to do it. In fact, if you look at John 3, 3, it says without this rebirth of the Holy Spirit is that a person can't even see the kingdom of God. If we can't see it, we can't go into it. We don't even know where we're going. But the person who enters has been born of the water and of the Spirit. In order to save us, Ezekiel 36 tells us that the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us, and that happens before we believe. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. What's the result? cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Especially the rule, the, the statute of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and having our sins forgiven. And then if you look at Titus 3.5, we see the work of the Holy Spirit in giving us a new life. We use the word to regenerate, right? To, to live again. To give rebirth. What he says here is that without the Holy Spirit, we would not have ever believed. Titus 3, 4 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, listen to this, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, 
so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here we have the Holy Spirit poured out upon us, regenerating us, giving us new life, renewing us, so what we can say, Jesus is Lord. That's, that's the miracle of faith. And that's why membership inside the body of Christ is a miracle. It, it doesn't matter how great of a Christian family that you grew up in, without the Holy Spirit, uh, you will either become a heathen or a hypocrite. You need rebirth. You need to be born again inside by the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. Through the Holy Spirit, we have life. And if you don't have that life, we say, Spirit, give me new life. Come inside. Renew me to the, to the truths and the word of God. A credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ is a miracle because unless God is at work, a person would never believe. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, unbelief, belief is seen in our confession and in the, the, the following on of that confession by consistency with what we say. Unbelief is seen in the way the person dismisses the work of the Holy Spirit. We see this in Matthew chapter 12 when Jesus talks about this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. When he says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Notice what he says, if you jump back to chapter uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can ever say, Jesus is cursed if they're speaking in the Spirit. You know, that's the blasphemy against the Spirit. It's to reject the way of salvation that God has, has made. The way of salvation is to say Jesus is Lord. Now, obviously, people make false professions of faith all the time. They say Jesus is Lord. They may join a church and do all those things, but then they not live like it. They, they, they show there's hypocrisy inside their life. And the truth is they undermine their own words. Romans 10, 9 says, if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. There's a consistency between what we say, what we believe, and what we do. There's a lordship of Christ over the life of his people. The point here is that all who profess faith in Jesus Christ are truly members of the body of Christ. Now again, what's happening inside of Corinth is that they're so, so full of pride in their spiritual gifts that they failed to see the true miracle of the Holy Spirit, which is professing faith in Christ. We don't judge spirituality by other markers. Have you professed faith in Jesus Christ? Do you believe in a way, do you live in a way that's consistent with that lordship of Jesus Christ? Well, then you are a miracle of God and you are part of the body of Christ. Rejoice. Does your neighbor profess faith in Jesus Christ? There's a miracle that's there inside their life also. There's no place to judge the importance of the people of God based upon gifting or, or, or their contributions. There is, um, you know, that's not the right measure. You know, the joy is when a person, when God saves a person from sin, and the person can confess Jesus as Lord. Now, as he moves on from this, Point, start in, in verse 3 and show the true presence of the Holy Spirit, he moves on to the area of spiritual gifting. And he's dealing with a specific issue, and the issue is of speaking in tongues. 
you know, the issue in Corinth, and people in Corinth were essentially saying is that if you don't speak in tongues, you're, you're either not a Christian, you're, you're a, a, a sub-Christian. You know, those of us who are very important and really full of the Spirit, we're the ones who speak in those tongues. Now, what is speaking in tongues? And it'll come up a few times um, over the time. And speaking in tongues is, at least one author says, it's a euphoric experience that causes the speaker to emit certain pattern of sounds that have no meaning to those who do not have the gift of interpretation. They say it's a euphoric experience that causes the speaker to emit certain patterns of sounds that have no meaning to those who do not have the gift of interpretation. Apparently it's some sort of an, of, of an unknown language, but a special language which is, was given to them by God. It's, we're going to come up over the next few weeks, but I want to say at the beginning is I, I just don't believe that this is an ongoing gift for for, for the church. Um, things like the gift of speaking in tongues and interpreting, interpreting them were given to the early church as a, as a sign, as an attestation to the, to, to the gospel of grace. This is before the Bible was written. This is before they had a written word before them. And, and God would give certain gifts to the church in order to attest the truth before they were written down. You know, what was the message? God would give it to prophets well, to speak in tongues and communicate that. Um, you know, how do we know this message is true? You know, God would give gifts of healing and, and, and miracles at that time. You know, but now that God has given us his word, you know, we don't believe that that continues any longer. Now, we know at this time that God had given that gift. It was a gift that was given. And what was happening is the Corinthians are using it in a way that they expected um, all believers to have it. That it was this highest, most wonderful gift, but that was a wrong belief. That's why he spends these three chapters dealing with it. The problem is that they were so emphasizing it is that it obscured the fact that the Holy Spirit equips every believer for some service. That the Holy Spirit gives gifts to every Christian to powerfully and effectively grow the kingdom of God. And that leads us into our second point. We move from the Holy Spirit saves. What does he do? He saves. The second thing that we see he does is that he equips. The Holy Spirit equips. See, especially in verses four through seven. So because, you know, there's this comparison that's going on and, and some gifts are being marginalized. You know, things that are important. They're not being valued. On the other side, some people are seeing their gifts as so important is they're not seeing how they need those other gifts inside their life. It's kind of becoming um, just very one-sided in, in, in what their worship services were looking like. And so Paul is responding to their spiritual pride, and, and he's addressing that pride with them, and it's something that's important for us to see. Because when God has given us any gifts, we need to be able to use those with humility. So verses 4 through 7 are a bit of a theological foundation for spiritual gifts. Uh, for all the things that you have, whether it's your gifts, your talents, your resources, your privileges, the big question is, is how are you using them? Are you using them for the glory of God or are you using them for others? Sometimes we might think that we have much to offer, so we bury our gifts. Sometimes we think that, um, you know, there's so many problems and troubles in our life, who would possibly listen to us? You know, but we'll see here is the gifting of God comes with a call to use those gifts. So, in verses 4 through 7, we see three ways that the gifts show themselves. In verse 4, we see varieties of gifts. In verse 5, we see varieties of service. And in verse 6, we see varieties of activities. First, in verse 4, the, the varieties of gifts. 
things that we're especially good at, things that are put inside of us by God, and, and things that really even become closely connected with our identity. You know, this is what I love to do. This is what I'm good at. This is the things that I do. There's a list of gifts that are given throughout the Bible. Um, they're in 1 Corinthians 12. We see it in verses 8 through 10. We also see it in Romans 12. You see it in Ephesians 4. You see it in 1 Peter 4. In fact, if you want a little way to remember where the gifts, the spiritual gifts are in the Bible, it's, there's 12 and 12 and 4 and 4. Right? 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. So if you ever want to look these up, you can. Um, you know, we see a partial list in verses 8 through 10 we'll talk about today. Um, but, you know, I, I don't believe that the list of, even all of them together is comprehensive list of all the gifts that are that are there. You know, none of them are the same. They're all a little bit different. But what's worth seeing is that really any talent or any privilege that we're given to is given to us by God's sovereign prerogative, and they're given to us for the good of others. So we see the varieties of gifts that are given. In verse 5, uh, it moves on to talk about the varieties of, of service. And what we see here in, in the use of that word service is uh, it often speaks of places of service, like offices of deacons or as elder. Um, those are places of service inside of, of, of the church. And, and many of the giftings that we ha- have might leave, lead to places of service. A person who has the gift of teaching might be a Sunday school teacher. As Pastor Doug mentioned earlier, we need Sunday school teachers. A person who has a gift of mercy might be a deacon. A, a person who has uh, the gift of speaking may become a pastor. Apostles had the gift of apostleship, and they would become apostles. So, you know, there was a connection with the gift with the position which they would serve in. Gifts prepare people for positions and, and places to serve. But it's true also that God sometimes reveals what our gifts are once we're already in a place to serve. God isn't always looking for equipped people to put in spots, but often he's saying, well, who's willing to go and to do that? And I'll equip them for that work that's before them. You know, God equips the called, not just waiting to call the equipped. Like Moses, right? Moses felt inadequate for his job. His job was to lead Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. And when God called him to do that, he didn't feel adequate to the task. and said, surely there must be somebody else But God promised me with him, and God promised that he would help him through that calling. He would equip him for the thing that was before him. And it's important for us to remember that if we have a a position or a job in the church, I mean, that's a gift that's given to us by God. Is it a job? Is it a leadership? Um, Whatever it is, it's from remembrance. It's a gift that God has put us there. There's no place for boasting or envy, but rather a call to humble service. Well, verse 6 then moves from gifts to service to activities. It reminds us that once we have a certain gift, we need to go ahead and to use it. It doesn't do any good to have something but just, to, but, but just not to use it. It's like the, the parable of the talents that we read about in Matthew 25, where uh, Master gave five talents to one, three talents to another, and one talent uh, to a third. And, you know, we see the reward that comes in in using that to, to build up this master's kingdom. But when the one comes back and he didn't use it because he buried it, you know, we see uh, the master's words to him in Matthew 25, 24 through 27 when he says, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and in my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. 
See, our gifts are to be used in activity, actually doing something in the exercise of them. Verse 7 reminds us of this. And it's really the main theme of the passage when it says, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. I mean, do you see that? I mean, to each means to every true believer in Jesus Christ, God has given a manifestation of the Spirit. This means a spiritual gift. Something is given, um, which is given by God and empowered for God for the work of service. And often, a gifting and a calling to Christ go together. We can think of the Apostle Paul. When the Apostle Paul uh, was, when the Lord Jesus Christ met with the Apostle Paul in the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9 and called him to faith in him, we also see he commissioned him to his work. His calling was he was going to be an apostle. You know, it happened at the same time. The calling to God and the gifts of God, they come together. So Paul was given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And as God has saved you, he's also gifted you. Remember what the scripture says in Ephesians 2.10? It says you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. God's given you a gift in order to do that. The verse 7 goes on to state the reason of the gifting is for the common good. In other words, it's for the good of the local church. It's, this is contrary to the reason that the the Corinthians were touting their spiritual gifts. You know, they were talking about it, elevating them and their own success and their own importance. The Apostle Paul says, no, it's not for your good. It's not for your glory. It's for the good of the body of Christ. One person illustrated this by talking about our, the appliances inside of our house. He went on to say that toasters don't eat their own toast and refrigerators don't cool their own food and stoves don't bake what they're going to have for dinner. But appliances are there to serve something else. And that as we gain uh, the benefit of their calling, of their work, uh, we get to eat and we're we're satisfied in that. In the same way that God has assigned you a divine purpose, a divine gift, and so others should benefit from you and the calling that God has for you. But the Corinthians wanted to make themselves look good. They wanted people to pay attention to them. The tongue speakers practice their gift for show. But gifts are not for self-promotion or to give a person status. No, our status comes from our faith in Jesus Christ, and the rest after that is service to him. So we don't boast in things we've been given. It's by grace. But we have from God is what he wanted to give to us, and he wants us to use in service to others. And then that leads us to our third point. So we see what is the work of the Spirit. The Spirit saves, the Spirit equips, and we see the Holy Spirit builds. He builds his church, and he builds his kingdom by using these gifts. We can look at verses 8 through 10 where we see a variety of different gifts, all given by one Spirit, but put in different places for a different reason. Each one accomplishing its own purpose for building the kingdom of God. And we see in verse 8, I'll I'll go through them quickly. Uh, We see in verse 8, him speaking about the utterance of wisdom. You know, taking the scriptures of God and making a proper application of it. How to live, how to parent, how to make decisions in light of eternity. Utterance of wisdom, but we also see next, utterance of knowledge. The ability to understand the scripture and then to be able to communicate it back to other people. And so you see, the things that he lists first, and those are of first importance, are ordinary means of grace things. They're the ordinary work of preaching and teaching. It's the ordinary work of getting in God's word and studying it and knowing it. 
starts here in our morning services, but I think it grows inside of our other care groups and the other times we have to study God's word together. But we see, you know, that's where the power is. He goes on in verse 9 to talk about faith, that ability to trust God for big things and to be able to lead other people into that same hope and belief. That builds the church. Then he goes on to talk about the gifts of, a gift of healing, the ability to heal diseases, disabilities, and demon possession. You know, healing is an immediate, verifiable testimony of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we look at redemptive history, we see certain pockets of time where there was a lot of miracles. But as God has closed his canon, we believe that, that, um, that God doesn't give this gift anymore to singular persons, although he does still answer our, our, our prayers for healing. I've seen it, and you've likely seen it. God still heals in answer to our prayers. Verse 10 talks about the working of miracles, like healing and other supernatural attestations to the, to, to the gospel. Then we see him mention prophecy. Prophecy is that ability to communicate um, the hidden things of God to others. Primarily at this time, it was to communicate the word of God. Remember, they didn't have a New Testament. They didn't have a Bible. And so prophets would say, hey, this is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to explain it to you. This is justification by faith alone. This is living a life by faith. You know, this is the calling that God has to us in service to him. And so they would explain that as, as they went around without the use of a Bible. Those were the prophets uh, that were given at the time. And you can imagine how important that is to communicate that at the time. We believe this is, you know, I believe that this Bible is given to us, you know, that that, that work of prophecy is, is ended um, in that specific way that it was given at that time. He goes on to talk about distinguishing between spirits, which is the ability to determine what's true and what's false the ability to differentiate what motivates different actions. And then finally, last, he speaks about tongues, that ability to speak to one another in a spiritual language or to interpret someone who is speaking in that language. And I think he puts it last because this is becoming the high, high mark of their worship services. And Paul's saying, you know, that needs to be either not a part of your worship services or, the, or, or a much lower mark than you're giving it. And so those are some of the gifts that he gives. And we remember why. It's for the building of his kingdom. And it requires a number of gifts, gifts because of the multifaceted challenge of gospel ministry. How do we live out the gospel in this world? And how do we use these gifts to demonstrate his glory? So verse 11 shows us that the gifts that people have, whatever they are, are given by God, but they're also empowered by God. Look what he says at the beginning of verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit. I mean, that's what he's doing. He's distributing these gifts, but then he's also empowering the gifts that they would become effective in your lives. We saw this in the story of the talents when the one master gave his servant five or three talents. And what did they do? They went and they, they doubled that. You know, when we show that same sort of spiritual fruit, the things that we do produces fruitfulness, you know, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, empowering us to do it and then building fruit as a result of it. God accomplishes um, his, his purposes through the workmanship. You are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Got one person described this gifting like a, a custom-made bowling ball. 
So when most of us go bowling, we just use whatever ball is available there that's the right weight, right? But a custom-made bowling ball is something serious bowlers do, which, which has that finger spacing, which is just right for their hand, which is weight, which is just right for them, and so that it kind of fits with their own body and their own type so that they can, uh, they can hit that mark every time and get the strike. In the same way, God has custom-made each one of you for his purposes. He's created you to hit, hit the mark that he has for you. Not all of us are the same. We don't come from an assembly line where, where God is just mixing and matching parts. No, there is a unique, custom-made nature to everyone to fulfill his purposes, to do his work, and with the gifting that God has given to us. We're custom-made. And he's the power source behind all the effectiveness that's there. You know, one of the best ways to learn our gifts and what we have is just to try different things. You know, if something seems interesting to you, to try it, to give it a shot. And if there's nothing that seems interesting to you, well, then the next opportunity that someone gives you to find a place to serve, if you're not interested in that any more than any other, might as well do that one. Just find a place to serve. You know, we have a spiritual gift of stacking chairs and pulling out branches and leaves, maybe not spiritual gifts, but, you know, these are just places where you serve, and then you realize, hey, God, you know, I have a joy in this, and, you know, maybe there's, there's a gift that God has given to me, the gift of service or the gift of helping, you know, where I can minister to the body of Christ, and he uses it for, his, for his, his purposes. You probably notice the gardens out front, the joy we have in those who spent time serving and clearing those out um, this, this last week. But the worst thing that you can do is nothing. The worst thing you can do is to bury that talent, it's because God has put you where he wants you so that you can serve him and to please him. And maybe you've thought about what gifts that you have. You know, we need to think much more about using gifts than we are about what gifts we have. You know, if you're good at something, that's probably a gift that you have. Go ahead and serve. God has gifted you for a reason, and your call is to go and use it. Just find places to go. Find places to serve instead of worrying about what gifts we have or we don't have. We'll find those spots that are the right spot for us as we do because of the delight and the effectiveness that we have inside those places. This is really one of the points that we see over this pandemic of the importance of being part of a local church and being present inside of that. You know, it's, it, we can't possibly fulfill, uh, you know, the, the calling to use our gifts if we're not connected up with other people. You know, there needs to be an involvement with a local church. And, you know, there can be a comfort level of staying distant away from other people, of, of staying away, but it's being in the presence of other people, knowing what's going on in their lives, knowing what's going on in the ministry of the church, seeing kids running up and down the hallways and seeing the needs that are there and jumping in and ministering in those cases. And that's the powerful work of the use of gifts within the present body of Christ. Without that, you know, the church misses out on these important elements of ministry within our body. Humility means that we use our gifts. It's prideful not to use our gifts. Humility means that we use them for others, not for ourselves or not boasting um, in what we have. And all this is an expression of the heart of Jesus Christ himself, isn't it? See, he's redeemed us by his grace. He saved us, not because of works we've done, but because of his own love and mercy. And then he's given to us gifts of grace to use for his purposes. When we come here, we're all sinners. We're all sin sinners who've been reconciled to the Lord 
by Jesus Christ. So we have no place of arrogance. We come as those who've been given a great salvation. Do you know that for yourself? You know, every one of us, every person on this planet has been given gifts and abilities to be a blessing to others around them. But the question is, is do we use them for the good of other people? Or are we just using the things that God has given us for our own selfish purposes? You know, we see our need of repentance. We see our need of faith. If you don't know Jesus Christ, our call is to, is to believe in him and, and find forgiveness of your sins. And then find how God uses those things that you have to be used for an eternal purpose which will outlast your life. And the joy of it is when you become a Christian, then he gives spiritual gifts, spiritual focus to the things that we do to be used for his honor and his glory and to fulfill his purposes. There is nothing that is more meaningful or satisfying than to know the gifts that God has given to me are being used by him to build his kingdom. And if you don't know him, we just pray that you would, that you confess the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord. And if you don't, if you haven't done that, and you're afraid to do that, that you'd say, Holy Spirit, help me. Cause me to be born again. Give me new life. Because unless you cause me born again, I cannot ever to see or believe or confess that. It's a work of grace. But as we pray, we believe he's faithful to answer those prayers. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of your people. God, thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit to equip us for service. And so, Father, we rejoice in our salvation that we know God, and we ask that you would help us to find the place to use our gifts for your honor and your glory and the building up of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.